Frankenstein is a groundbreaking horror novel about a reanimated corpse trying to find its place in the world. Versions of the tale have now spread through two centuries, which means that eventually someone will have to answer to Mary Shelley for The Monsters and Frankenweenie. And this is The Book Pile. I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic, a father, and the one thing that me and Dr. Frankenstein have in common is that both of us have tried to get our children struck by lightning. (laughs) And I'm David Vance. Mary Shelley started writing this at 18, so I can't wait to see what masterpiece I write halfway through my life. (laughs) (laughs) It's the holiday season, or so Costco has had us believe since August, and the only gift we ask for is a rating and a review. Ricky Baker 11 says, Dave frequently says, this is a short one. Is he talking about his lessons from the book or his stint in med school? (laughs) Well, thanks, Ricky Bobby or whatever. (laughs) Now, as per our tradition here at the book pile, every year on, what day is it, Dave? October 17th, we release our Halloween episode. (laughs) No, it's just a fun coincidence. So I chose Frankenstein as this week's book because a couple of months ago, I had run out of credits on Audible, and this one was free. (laughs) So it was a shot in the dark, but I still enjoyed it for what it was. I put it on my list of books that are great to read once. (laughs) It's creepy, especially when Dan Stevens does his sad Frankenstein monster voice. It tries to be emotional, which counts for something, and it's got a couple of legitimate scares, like when Dr. Frankenstein gives up on another reanimation project. I could split hairs on how odd some of Mary Shelley's choices are, but it is hard to be critical of a book that is basically the first science fiction novel in history and also written by a teenager. Uh (laughs) What did you think, Dave? I think it's well-written, and I'm glad it was made because, you know, it's maybe the first sci-fi and it launched so many things I love. I don't think it's super scary or super entertaining, Mm -hmm. but is that the book's fault when it came out three years after the War of 1812? (laughs) (laughs) By the way, a funny thing about the 1800s, the horror was less scary, but horrible things were way more likely to happen to you. Oh, man, that's a good point. (laughs) Finally, our next two books are The Charisma Myth and Mistborn. All right, and without further ado, here are five lessons that we took from Frankenstein. All right, lesson one, explore ideas to death. (laughs) Do you understand the Halloween wordplay I'm trying to include in this week's spooktacular episode, Dave? (laughs) Anyway, werewolf was I. So Mary Shelley's future (laughs) husband, the poet Percy Shelley, who is also famous, but mostly just in college English classes, convinced Mary that this was more than just a short story she was writing. And I'm glad he did. He also convinced her to marry him, even though both of them would continue to see other people. But maybe that's just how people lived it up when life expectancy was barely double digits. (laughs) I do think this is how you can pull people even deeper into a story, is when you not only come up with a unique idea, but you go down even farther 
than you thought initially possible. Mm. So in Frankenstein, it starts with the question, what if you brought something dead back to life? But then immediately it's followed with, what if that thing wasn't happy to have been created? And then what if that thing then demanded that another of its kind be created so it wouldn't be lonely? She just keeps exploring these ideas. And while I agree with you, it's not like a super entertaining narrative, but I did find it interesting where she was going with this, especially Mm -hmm. since I've read other stuff from this era, which generally deals with people that are just sort of covered in coal dust trying to make money. To be fair, it was probably incredibly entertaining back then. And if she had written it today with modern sensibilities, it would probably still be very entertaining. For sure. And speaking of modern examples, I think that Christopher Nolan does this. Like Inception starts with asking, what if you could fight crime in someone else's dream? But then it goes immediately to, what if you could go in a dream within a dream? And then halfway through the movie, they're like, how about three? (laughs) Like Minority Report asks, what if there was a system that could predict future murders? And then not even 10 minutes into the film, it asks, now what if the guy running the whole program was convicted of one of those future murders? Mm -hmm. And what if that guy was from Top Gun? Like it just keeps going. (laughs) And the, uh, the original Frankenstein movie just asked, What if the Frankenstein story was of mice and men? (laughs) Anyway, I think there's a lot of value in digging down farther into an already novel idea. It took me too long to learn this in comedy. I used to be a one-liner comic, which is hard to do well and very hard to sustain for an hour. But I eventually came to the conclusion that if people were laughing at a joke, maybe try and add a few more lines to it instead of hitting the brakes the moment everyone is on board. (laughs) So, Dave, I don't do this very often uh, because I try and forget most of my past. But one of the (laughs) jokes from my first year in comedy was, I have a chameleon, I think. (laughs) I was (laughs) pretty bat at comedy, meaning I wasn't very (laughs) ghouled. (laughs) Happy Halloween, everyone. I hate myself. (laughs) Like I said at the beginning, I decided not to swing too hard at making fun of uh, this story that was written 204 years ago (laughs) and will live on much longer than I will. But probably the the biggest issue with this story is that Dr. Frankenstein creates the monster, he animates the monster— He's terrified of what he's done, so he just leaves his house with the monster loose inside it. (laughs) Doesn't tie it down, doesn't lock the doors. Uh And then he's surprised when he gets back. Where'd it go? (laughs) Did he just walk out of his house and immediately, like, Timon and Pumbaa are out there? (laughs) Don't worry about it. I think that's how their song goes. They sing until Timon's neck is snapped by the monster. (laughs) Pumbaa is slowly drowned in a marsh. (laughs) It needs no (laughs) word. Okay, lesson two. You never have too many narrators. The narrator gives us his life story at the beginning, and it's like, all right, you got to know your narrator. 
Then he meets Dr. Frankenstein and gives us his full childhood and backstory. <laughs> it's, it's like, no, by all means, we've got all day. <laughs> this keeps going till at one point, no joke, Mary Shelley is telling the story of the narrator, telling the story of Dr. Frankenstein, telling the story of the monster, <laughs> telling the story of this random girl named Agatha. <laughs> Dude, it is Inception. And I wish Agatha started telling the story of Mary Shelley, and then we're oh. all just trapped in hell. <laughs> all right. Lesson three. Give me a good reason for a crazy idea. I think this is what's written in the testing room at Taco Bell headquarters. <laughs> The emotions that Mary Shelley describes from both Dr. Frankenstein and his monster's perspective, they seem so raw, so real, that as I was reading this, it sounded to me like someone who truly dealt with depression and grief. Oh. So after reading the book, I read about Mary Shelley's life, and it was full of tragedy, starting with losing her oh. mother at birth and adding up to uh, the death of her own child when Mary was just 17. Oh my gosh. She started writing Frankenstein just less than a year later. And in it, she has Dr. Frankenstein call the idea of death, quote, that most irreparable evil. Man. It's fascinating and dark and just sort of purely emotional in a way that to me is reminiscent of like Voldemort or Sauron's views on death as if it's the only mm. sin. And I do think that Shelley borrowed heavily from J.K. Rowling, but that's just hearsay. <laughs> no, I, I think the reason why this story not only hit but endured is because Dr. Frankenstein's reasons for trying to bring the dead back to life came from a real place, right? He loses his mother and Shelley was able to write it in such a genuinely poignant way that you sympathize with this madman. His mm. reasons make sense even if his goal is terrifying. Uh, another example of crazy idea, but pretty good reason. When the first Godzilla movie came out in 1954, the premise was, what if all this reckless hydrogen bomb testing in the ocean awoke an ancient creature and brought death on us all? And I mm. saw the newest Godzilla movie last year where the premise is, what if Godzilla and some other huge forgettable monsters destroyed $300 million worth of CGI? <laughs> I want to throw out there, too. That Godzilla could for sure be killed with just another hydrogen bomb. <laughs> so I, I just think if you can give a real human reason for doing anything, we'll go along with you no matter how insane the idea is. And mm -hmm. yes, Michael Bay, that's why everyone makes fun of your robot car movies. There's no <laughs> reason for them. <laughs> All right, lesson four. Some knowledge may be bad for us. This book basically says, beware of science because you don't know what will happen if you play God. And I sometimes roll my eyes at that, especially when it comes not from scientists, but from artists who benefit from everything science already discovered. <laughs> Realistically, what Dr. Frankenstein would probably discover is vaccines and air conditioning. I also think it's easy to think GMOs are the world's greatest evil if you're not one of the like billion people saved by the green revolution. <laughs> and plus her subtitle is the modern Prometheus. He gave humans fire, which did so much good. It was only bad for him and his liver. <laughs>
But this year I read The Making of the Atomic Bomb and I realized, oh, some knowledge is kind of awful. <laughs> Leo Zelard figured out how to make a nuclear explosion. And once you know it can be done, you have pretty terrible choices. You can sit back and see if the Nazis do it, or you can rush in and try to make this terrible invention yourself. And we chose the less terrible option. And now for 70 years, we're a button away from the end of the world. <laughs> so I, I feel bad for laughing at Mary. <laughs> I don't know how to solve the problems in real life, but I can solve the book's problem because all the trouble happens because people are scared of the monster. So next time, just bring to life a good looking person. <laughs> all right. Lesson five. There's another way to teach English. So this is a big required book, and like a lot of old books, it starts slowly. And Kellen, I have two theories about that, and I'm curious what you think. Theory one, there weren't a lot of entertainment options, so authors went as slow as they wanted. Theory two, maybe we're so inundated with media, we've been trained to understand stories quickly, and people just weren't back then. Like, hmm. if you showed Charles Dickens a Marvel movie, do you think he'd just start bleeding from his eyes? <laughs> <laughs> Basically, it comes down to, did the audience not demand something faster or could the audience not handle something faster? I do think for sure there was less entertainment. Like the words fast pace, I don't think were ever used next to each other until maybe 1970. <laughs> Ben-Hur is one of my favorite movies. It has an action sequence that still holds up today. I would put it in my top five, The Chariot Race. Wow. Unbelievably shot action sequence of actual horses, actual chariots, and, and stunt people flying wow. all over the place. But it is preceded by a 10-minute opus <laughs> as the chariots make a full walking lap around the entire <laughs> circus of Rome. <laughs> And I read about it. The director said that he wanted the viewers to get a real sense of the scale of this <laughs> place. And it's like, yeah, I think that's what establishing shots are for. <laughs> Stop trying to make things real for us. Real life is what we're trying to escape. <laughs> it took me 10 minutes to drive to the theater. I don't want to see video of it. <laughs> Also, this was back when people would dress up in like a suit and tie. I can't believe they were okay with sitting in a theater for five hours. <laughs> All of this brings me to my main point, which is if you are a kid and you loved reading Frankenstein, great. Power to you, read Frankenstein. But I wish my English teachers knew you can teach kids about themes and characters and motifs using books kids actually like. <laughs> you know how much harder I would have tried analyzing Ender's Game rather than learning whatever a gable is? <laughs> and I love writing now, but not because of, like, the Canterbury Tales. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm being unfair to Frankenstein, which is more fun than a lot of high school books, and I'm kind of just doing it to prove a point. But I know I've said this before, I almost quit piano till I got permission to play fun songs instead of just classical, and now piano is a huge part of my life. So my point is, it's so hard to get good at something you hate. Why do we make this harder on ourselves? <laughs> All right, random facts. Here's my favorite quote from the book. My life might have been passed in ease and luxury, but I preferred glory to every enticement that wealth placed in my path. I call this every billionaire who runs for president. <laughs> <laughs>
So at one point in the book, when uh, the creature or the demon, he, he calls it quite a few things. <laughs> he's living in a forest and for a few months he stalks this cottage. Mm-hmm. And uh, he eventually, like, goes and uses their axe at night to gather firewood for them, which he'd leave for them to find in the morning, like those shoemaking elves. But if they were animated corpses who secretly watched you through your windows. (laughs) Are they not? (laughs) The book is called Frankenstein or The Modern Prometheus. Wouldn't it be great if more books just explained their central metaphor in the title? (laughs) To Kill a Mockingbird, parentheses, the Mockingbird is Boo Radley. (laughs) At one point in describing the decay that Dr. Frankenstein witnesses in exhuming graves, Mary Shelley has him say, quote, I saw how the worm inherited the wonders of the eye and brain. And it's Mm. such a disturbing but masterfully written sentence. It reminds me of when I was 16 and wrote a ghost story about two guys who happened upon a haunted house and their names were Frank and Frunk. (laughs) But in my defense, I was two years younger than Mary Shelley. (laughs) The monster is telling how difficult it was to learn speech as an adult And also, he has a better vocabulary than we do. (laughs) So which is it? (laughs) At one point, Victor Frankenstein is uh, telling his seven-hour-long tale to these (laughs) bored sailors. He said that when he was a child, his father saw him reading a book by Cornelius Agrippa and called it Sad Trash. Which is what I call Twilight. But he says that because his father wasn't more tactful about his comment, that Victor went even deeper into Agrippa's writings and even blames his dad for everything else he did after that because his dad didn't use a nicer tone to sway him. Don't we all do that? (laughs) I do know that this is how kids can be. So if I ever saw one of my kids reading like Mein Kampf, I'll probably approach it gently like, hey, you know what? I have an even better book for you. And I'll give him (laughs) chicken soup for the soul. (laughs) I hope we all just blame our parents for everything. And somewhere back in time is the first eukaryotic cell carrying the (laughs) sins of the world. (laughs) Also, every time you say Victor Frankenstein, I almost hear Victor Frankel, which would have been a very different book. (laughs) Man's search for the beast he made by accident. (laughs) Dr. Frankenstein brings his creature to life, and then he's immediately horrified by how hideous it is. And that's how many of us feel when some of you post your newborn pictures. (laughs) Yeah, how much more relatable would this book have been if the rest of the story was just Dr. Frankenstein flipping open his wallet photos to strangers? As I was going over my notes uh, before recording this, I found uh, that I had put in the word spurious, which is a word I have never used. (laughs) And I think it was because I had misspelled curious and autocorrect thinks I'm smarter than I am. (laughs) I think you're you're using that vocab calendar. (laughs) 
So I was vehemently spurious about the minutia that she was conversating. And <laughs> oh no. Oh, I could never be a teacher. <laughs> the wonderful thing about language is that if you're wrong but stubborn, eventually you're right. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> that is funny to me, like how fluid language is, but it's not even that it's fluid or that mm -hmm. it evolves. It's more that it just gives in because every you can look at every new edition of the official Scrabble dictionary and it'll show like the new words of the year. And eventually uh -huh. they're just like, <laughs> OK, fine. Ginormous can be a word. <laughs> It's so funny, like, a holy war was fought over the use of the word literally, <laughs> and now it's in the dictionary as meaning figuratively. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, a literal holy war was fought over that. <laughs> <laughs> and I could care less. <laughs> the people who hate it when you say Frankenstein instead of Frankenstein's monster, mm -hmm. hearing this, they are probably also bursting a blood vessel. Mm. <laughs> Let's have fun. Yeah. Let's lean into this. Yeah. I went to the ATM machine and put in my PIN number. <laughs> Supposedly, if you do that... <laughs> Even how he created the monster, I, I do say credit where credit is due. The classic 1929 movie, or whenever it was, I just say that to sound like a smart Jeopardy contestant. <laughs> Wait, hold on. If it's 29, at the beginning of the Depression, someone was like, you know what we need? Is <laughs> an actual greenback making people sad. <laughs> do you feel strangled by this economy? <laughs> <laughs> Wish your savings were brought back to life. <laughs> that movie does deserve its place in cinematic history, even though it's is so different from the source material. It was still, I think, it built such a concrete, solid uh, mythos. Mm. The idea of gathering these body parts and putting them together, having them struck by lightning. The book is... Uh, she's more vague, and to me it makes it that much more grotesque because Dr. Frankenstein talks about like going to uh, essentially butcher shops and vaguely assembling these things. But because so many parts of the human body are small, it's harder for him. That's the reason why he makes this eight-foot person. <laughs> Because I guess he's not great with his hands. <laughs> I like that instead of practicing carpentry, he was like, no, no, I'll make this big enough so that if this goes wrong, it will get out of hand immediately. <laughs> it's so much more horrifying to think that instead of just sewing together like seven giant body parts, he really got in there. <laughs> but when he did that, he was like... You know what? Actual spleens are very tiny and difficult to handle, so I'll just sort of uh, craft one together with these sausages. <laughs> if this happened in modern day, it'd be a guy who makes him eight foot so he can be the center in his rec league, and then the monster kills his whole family. <laughs> yeah. If the monster were alive today, he would for sure be an incel. His whole attitude is, 
People don't like me, and I'm going to make it their problem. <laughs> he approaches Victor after killing his brother and is like, hey, my bad. Uh, you owe me a woman. <laughs> he says, make me a woman as ugly as I am so she'll have no choice but to be with me. And it's like, oh, keep him away from Reddit. <laughs> <laughs> All right, to recap, our favorite lessons from Frankenstein. One, explore ideas to death. Two, you never have too many narrators. Three, give me a good reason for a crazy idea. Four, some knowledge may be bad for us. Five, there's another way to teach English. And six, if you're heading out to watch a chariot race, you can show up late. <laughs>